Welcome to Destination Linux episode 115. This is a podcast made up of four of the greatest minds ever to discuss their passion for Linux. My name is Noah, and with me are my three podcasting band of lunatics. Hey, Zeb, what's new with you? Um, well, I've been having fun and games with Solus Linux and trying to get it installed via UEFI and having a very interesting conversation with people in the Telegram group as to why it isn't really working properly, but hey, that's just for another show. But I've now decided that there's only two distributions going to be UEFI on my machine, Peppermint and MX, and everything else goes on legacy, and then it can't mess it up. What uh, what is the what is your rationale for like why would you not have everything on UEFI assuming that it boots? That's the the main assumption that it Solus just will not boot. If it's the only distribution on the disk, it's fine. Yeah, and system D or whatever it is they're using to boot it is great. Open up my other SSDs, reboot the machine. I can see everything. Great. Install another OS, UEFI. Solus disappears. Gone. Dead. Can't Interesting. And that you, I assume that you've tried this on multiple machines. It's not just maybe a, a UEFI configuration inside of a BIOS of a certain machine. Um, no, I've only got the one main machine that I do it on. However. Every other distro I use works. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, what the Solus guys say is it's because they are doing it correctly and everyone else is using a UEFI um, bias, not not bias, UEFI grub hack, which is filthy and dirty and they shouldn't be doing it, but it works. Is that like a Michael Tunnell Turdio booter kind of hack or? <laughs> no. I don't know. I'd, see, my difficulty is I don't know enough about the technical details to explain fully what's going wrong. I just know what works for me. Fair enough. Ryan, what have you been doing this week? Well, I haven't had a super exciting week, but I have been looking for a new NAS solution here for my network storage. And I thought it would be great to bring that question to you guys for some hardware, because in looking at it, uh, I've right now I use a Synology NAS for my backups and it automatically goes in. It runs all the backups on my machines uh, once I install it and it keeps it up to date, keeps doing the backups and syncing and everything else. So if I mess up a machine, it's very easy to restore. Um, but I want to try a free NAS because I've never played with it before. And that seems like the go-to solution. And I was looking at different hardware there. I want to spend about $300 or less on the hardware. And as I understand some of the you know, preferred equipment if you're going to build your own is Xeon processors until Xeon processors seems to be very compatible with and about eight gigabytes of RAM. So the question is, do I build something myself or on the cheap? Is there a solution already done out there that's less than $300? Most of the solutions already have it on there seem to be really expensive or what do you recommend if you guys have done this before and the community can jump into as well? The, uh, so I'm going to start, I want to start here. I want to back up just a second. I, I'm going to go ahead and suggest that you probably maybe plan if your budget allows to go a little higher than eight gigs of Ram while yeah. it will work, it will run on eight gigs of Ram. But what you're going to find is your file. When you go to transfer a file, what you're going to find is the file speed is going to go, Oh, look, 30 megs a second, 50 megs a second, 80 megs a second. Oh my 10 megs a second. Like uh, 15 yeah. seconds in, because it, it, when that buffer run, hits, runs out of RAM. Um, as far as hardware, have you checked out Mr. Rackables? No. Go to, a, go to a site called unixsurplus.com. This guy, so all of IX systems, which is like the go-to creme de la creme, money is no object, I want the best free NAS storage appliance out there anywhere. 
uh, IX Systems builds all of their machines based off of the Supermicro platform. And Unix Surplus does the same thing, except what that guy does is a lot of times he'll take machines out of production and rebuild them or, or refurbish them. And so you can, he calls his website the home of the $99 server. So nice. you, you can build a free NAS machine for 99 bucks. Now, I'm not promising you're going to like it, but <laughs> you can build a free NAS machine for $99. Now, if you're willing to spend a little bit more, you can get Xeon processors, you can get removable drive bays, uh, all that stuff is available and it's super cheap. Very cool. That's what I was looking for. Also, if anybody in the community has suggestions, if you've done it recently, feel free to send those in. But also this week, I've been playing with Ubuntu 19.04 beta, and I've played with the Mate and Gnome version so far, and it is in beta, and I want to make sure that's very clear. But I will be doing a video kind of showing uh, the upgrade process and some of the in, in beta and making it very clear it's in beta because it's not a review of it, obviously, because they're in beta, but just doing a video showing some of the features. And of course, the speed improvements you get on the 5.0 kernel, which is incredible when you get there from the 4.18, I think that they're on now. So I've been playing with those some this week and, you know, everything seems to be running fairly well. I think they're set to release later in April, uh, the 1904 officially coming out of beta. And I'm very excited for the Ubuntu community to finally experience the later kernels because there's just so much that is inside of them from a hardware device support and, of course, performance, whether you're, you know, I'm not just talking about the video card itself either. Plus, you get the AMD FreeSync and all these other features out there that are enabled in the 5.0 kernel. So I think it's very exciting that finally um, the folks on Ubuntu are going to be able to experience all the work that's kind of going on behind the scenes with that. Very cool. That's very cool. Well, keep keep us up to date and uh, let us know how that evolves, will you? Yep, definitely. Michael, what kind of trouble have you gotten yourself into this week? Uh, so I've been doing quite a lot this week, uh, but mostly trying to get not sick. Uh, unfortunately, I've been sick for most of the week, and I, but I'm still been trying to work on the show. And uh, I actually did a radio show recently, where not really a radio show, but I did a a segment on a radio station where I talked about Linux and it talked about Linux user groups and all kinds of stuff like that, where I explained why Windows is a virus and all kinds of things. Uh, apparently, the host was not prepared for me to talk about it in that sense, but uh, it was it was kind of fun. To, uh, did, you, did you really call Windows yeah, a virus? I, did. I saw some comments of people saying, great job, Michael. That was the greatest segment ever when you called Windows a virus. Not, not only did he call Windows a virus, he explained in great detail with technical pinpoint accuracy of why it meets that definition. Yeah. Exactly. Mike. Pretty good. So Pretty good. They, they set it up where he was talking about how he was he asked the question about like whether like security and privacy was made why people used Linux. And then I used that to kind of point out why Windows 10 is itself a virus and why they could just completely like just abandon Windows. Because you, if you're worried about getting a virus like you already have one, so it doesn't really matter. And uh, <laughs> wow, so, that is incredible. Well, he just That's he awesome. set it up and I was like, I just I can't I can't I have to so do it. So is there a place? <laughs> us to be able to watch or listen to this uh it's not gonna be it's only an audio so but i haven't uploaded it yet but i will do a uh upload on youtube uh for the it'll be probably uh in a couple days or so so like as soon as it's, it's probably like by the time this releases uh the full for edited version of the show releases it'll probably be the same day as when i release the other one and that'll be so, on your tux so, digital page on uh, your youtube yeah i'll put it on tux digital okay so everybody around the beginning of May, uh, make sure to check that out and take a look. And uh, about then it'll be posted. You're not wrong. It'll be it'll be up by then for sure. 
Hey, this episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Now, DigitalOcean is the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform out there. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with their intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and much more. Now, you can get access to all of this at plus world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. But it gets even better because you can use their flexible pricing structure for as low as $0.07 per hour. And as Ryan would say, that's darn near free. Now, DigitalOcean has over 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open-source software, language, and frameworks, which means they're a true community member. You can try things out on your own or try them on DigitalOcean, then roll them onto your own infrastructure. DigitalOcean doesn't care. They just want to help you get the best out of Linux. You can get started with DigitalOcean for two months with a free $100 credit by going to do.co slash DL. You got to use that URL, do.co slash DL. That lets DigitalOcean know that you're a fan of Destination Linux and you appreciate them appreciating us. You can use that $100 credit to try out a bunch of their small droplets or you can use one of the big beefy droplets if you need to spin up a real powerful server just to, to knock something out. If you want, you can even have a test run with their beefy 16 gigabyte of RAM 6V CPU droplet that has six terabytes of total transfer. Now, what are you going to transfer six terabytes of? I have no idea, but you can give it a shot. Again, you can get started at DigitalOcean with $100 of free credit by going to do.co slash DL. And a huge thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. Before we get into the email, we just want to give a special thanks to everyone who has supported the GoFundMe page to bring me to America. Um, I say it every week, but I am truly humbled and grateful for the sort of donations that you guys have, you guys and girls have been given. And so far, you've now raised over $1,516. We have a $2,000 goal, but if we don't get there and we just stay on $1,500, it's astounding that you guys have been able to uh, help me out in this way and help me get to self so that I can say all those British things that I'm not supposed to say. <laughs> so the page is still up if you want to see me, along with the rest of the crew, all together at Southeast Linux Fest. Any amount of donation would be appreciated. We will be doing a live show from the Southeast Linux Fest, along with the Ask Noah show, and we will do some live streaming um, showing me just making sure that Michael's being a good boy. Yeah. <laughs> um, Yep. So just to let you know as well that the page for self and booking your room is finally live. So you can go and get your reservations all set up um, and the URL will be in the show notes. Yep. You don't want to miss it this year. All right. So this week we've got an email that came in from Peter. Greetings, Destination Linux team. This is Peter, the guy you all know as the Scotsman in Kentucky that is deeply in love with Solus Linux, also known as Mint Spider or Solus Spider on Biddle. Although I have been watching and interacting with the Linux-based podcast for many years, this is the first time that I have written to one. Yesterday, Thursday, the 21st, 2019, I took the day off to drive my wife and her mother, who I affectionately call my dragon-in-law, to her medical appointments around town. <laughs> While sitting in multiple medical office waiting rooms, I watched Destination Linux 113 unedited on my Chromebook. I needed something to fill my brain, but also be able to pause as needed. Being a patron, patron, I was able to watch the three-hour, 38-minute show throughout the day. <laughs> Not to be confused with a Kofi patron who has exactly the same benefits, 
With my work, home, church workload, I'm quite selective in what Linux podcasts I regularly follow, and Destination Linux is definitely one. Thank you for an excellent blend of banter, news, and discussion. Appreciate the work each of you do for the community and as you blend together on Destination Linux. So this was just an awesome email. I love the Dragon Law reference. I'm going to steal that. But I also <laughs> love the fact that he gave a throwback to Noah's rant at the end of <laughs> one of the episodes about Kofi and Patron and the difference between which was genius and uh, just awesome. Thank you so much for the long-term support and for appreciating the show. And we appreciate you. And obviously you're a patron uh, because you got the unedited version of the show, which there's a ton more uh, in the unedited versions of us messing up mostly for hours on end getting the show out to you. So yeah. that's awesome. I applaud him for making it all the way through the entire unedited show. <laughs> that just shows you how boring hospitals. I, be. <laughs> I barely make it through the unedited show as a host. <laughs> so I don't even know how that guy did it. <laughs> Uh, yeah. yeah, but thank no, you for the email. So we want to hear from you, our listeners. Send in your favorite Linux distribution software or tip and trick. Ask that burning question. How do you use Linux? Why do you think Linux is better than Windows? Everything and anything you want to let us know about, send your email to comments at destinationlinux.org. Yeah, I, I do want to make a special note here uh, of what Zeb noted. We want you to send in your favorite Linux software tips. There are a couple of times where we've repeated some of our tips and tricks in the past, um, you know, from prior episodes a while ago, and sometimes that's okay. But we like, you know, at a point you get to where we've used all the tips and tricks we know or we're thinking about. So we'd love to have some of you send in your favorite software that you use and how you use it and some of your tricks that you may do in the command line or anything along those lines, that would be fantastic. And as always, as Noah says, try to keep the emails, you know, a couple paragraphs or less preferred. That's what I always say. It becomes, <laughs> it becomes really hard to read these huge ones. Even though you guys send in some fantastic long emails, um, it's really hard to read those on the air. So if you want your uh, tip and trick or things on the air, then best to keep it short. Um, but that will help us uh, definitely, you know, expand all of the options out there for everyone to hear about uh, to get help in the different software and tips and tricks that you have for you. Destination Linux has gone through a lot of changes in the last year. And so we've kicked off this new segment so that you could learn more about each of the Destination Linux hosts. In this third mini host interview, we're going to talk to Zeb and learn a little bit more about his journey and passion. So obviously, Zeb, I would welcome you into the program, but you're already here. The first question I want to ask you is, how did you get started in Linux? Tell us that story. Um, well, it's actually interesting because I'd watched each of you give your answers every week, and I'd always thought in my mind that I started with Linux in 2009. And then I realized there's absolutely no way that that can be true because I had worked for a previous company for 12 years, and I left there in 2006. So thinking back, I first learned about Linux in, back in 1994 1995. Oh. Um, when I was working in an IT department, and at the time we were supporting Novell and Unix, um, we were just in the process of moving over to Windows and whatever was around at that particular time. Um, but there were some real techie guys that could do things with Linux that took ages in either Novell or Windows. So they pointed me over to Ubuntu. Um, and I remember installing it originally via Wubi. And what an awful mess that was. It gave you a chance to look at it, but it wasn't really 
what Linux was was meant to be about. Um, and it was interesting for me, but back then, for me, too many things that I can't remember now, they just didn't work. And it frustrated. It, it, oh, I, I was just, no, this is, I don't know why they're giving me this. It just doesn't work. Um, and it was so bad at the time that I wrote a little four-line, five-line explanation of a guide to Linux. So you'll have to bear with me, yeah? So L, learn to speak geek or die trying. <laughs> I, inexplicable, only for those people with abnormal thought processes. <laughs> N, not for the faint-hearted. U, universally accepted that the program you want won't work without spending hours with geeks in a forum. Wow. X, xenophobia. You will soon be exhibiting xenophobic traits if you stick with this pile of ha ha ha. But being the mercurial person I am, I kept going back to it. Yeah, I must have been some sort of masochist. And bit by bit, I learned it and I learned it. And then I guess it was around 2010, 2012, something like that, that I thought, you know what? This is pretty cool and it works. I like this. So that's how I, I, I came to know Linux. It was slowly, bit by bit, mm. over the years. That's, I mean, to be fair, in the 90s, um, I would agree with that statement. Like, it, it was it was painful. And I, I still used it anyway um, for a lot of the time just to, just to have something different and just to try it out. But there is many, many cases where I was like, this is so painful. Like... I mean, Windows itself was painful back then too, but like there, it was mm. it was oh, yeah. so painful to just have to even set up drivers for your printer was like you're you're doing surgery to a computer or something. It, right. it was just ridiculous. But uh, now, like especially like 2010 or whatever, that's when it started to become like super easy to use. So it makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. That's when you when you you know first started like jumping into it heavily because like 2010 2012 around that time is when it became like anybody could use it and it was it was much more uh, user friendly. You know, an interesting parallel I just want to point out because I, I, I don't want this to go overlooked and I think it's important for us as a community to acknowledge that. What significant hardware thing happened around 2008, 2009, 2010 in that area? Netbooks, right? Like Dell and, and, all, and HP and all these companies started to come out and they were making netbooks and there were these underpowered devices, and, but people liked the form factor and so they started selling them pre-installed with Linux. And I think that did not, I think that played a major role in getting the name out there. And so just, just to point out when stuff like that comes along, when the, when the pocket style PCs, GPD pocket comes out and they support Linux out of the box, what you have to understand about that is that brings people into Linux that wouldn't ordinarily be there and creates an experience and also provides the, the perceived benefit of industry support. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Unity started out as the Ubuntu Netbook Edition. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely, it did. And so that's that's a good point. I mean, then and then also like the transition from all this that new hardware, and then like 2012 when Steam comes out. It might have been 2011, but I think it was 2012 when Steam came out for Linux, and then it it started getting more and more you know user friendly because that was the focus now of getting you know as many people to use it as possible. Uh, so like it, it's it's very interesting, um, but also uh, Zeb, what was the first distro that you kind of fell in love with, and what was like your favorite DE? 
Um, well, back then, I can't say I ever fell in love with any distro. Um, uh, a true love for Linux started when I found Peppermint um, in June of 2015. But if I had to name notable distros back in that time, um, it will probably be, and this is going to be really strange because I can't get on with it at all now, um, PC Linux OS, which for the way I was using Linux at the time, just used to work. So that was cool. Um, Linux Mint. Hmm. Um, a slightly off the cuff one back then, not many people knew about it. Solid XK, you could either have X, XFCE or KDE, and of course um, Kubuntu. Um, and I wrote a little part on my on my signature um, with Kubuntu, and I, I and I didn't cut and paste it. I wish I had done that, but it was along the lines of, and the world was falling apart, and I can't do anything. And then I remembered I've got Kubuntu. Nice. <laughs> Again, it just worked. Nice. At that time, the people I was talking to on the forum were really friendly and helpful, and they would dumb it down for me. Um, so, but even back then, I couldn't sit still because it was PC Linux OS, Linux Mint, Solid XK, Kubuntu. Let's try something <laughs> else. So, even back then, I I had hepatitis, just didn't know it. <laughs> nice. So, when you think back on, you know, you're telling the story about you writing the acronym of what you don't like about Linux when you first started and kind of the frustrations of getting things to work, the dark ages of Linux were upon us. And you're correct, some, not all the, even Windows at that time wasn't fantastic either. But what made you stick with it? What Still made isn't. you keep going back? Um, I guess it would be the ability to continually change how you interact with it. Um, with Windows, You've got Windows, and it's there, and it works. If you wanted to mess about with Windows, you had to, I don't know, I forget the names of the companies. There were a couple of names of companies out there that had fences and did other different bits and pieces to make Windows look different. You didn't have to go through all those loops to do that with Linux. Whether you, you're just not stuck with one look and feel. So whether you're a mouse, keyboard, 50-50 person, or whether you're more mouse than keyboard, or i3 or tiling, there's a Linux out there for you. So there was no chance to become bored with Linux. And the more I used it, the better I became of it, uh, at it. And the more I realized that there wasn't really that much that I could do on um, Windows that I couldn't do on Linux. So it was that flexibility of not being stuck with the same old, same old, every day of the week. And that's why I eventually stuck with Linux. I think there's a lot of people like myself who don't really understand what you do a uh, day to day. And maybe that's, that's why uh, I don't know the answer to the next question, but what kind of tools do you use on a day to day basis to use Linux only for personal stuff, only for work stuff for both work and personal. And what are some of the tools that, that keep you on it? Okay. So Linux for me is unfortunately only personal. Uh, at the organization I currently work for, we're currently using Windows 8.1 and we're moving to Windows 10. So for me, when I, when I do all my jumping around, etc., I must have Steam and OBS for my gaming and streaming, and I must have Thunderbird for my email. Nice. Everything else, I can nine times out of 10 simply use what is presented to you by the distro. Um, I don't do any fancy video editing. All of my videos that go up on YouTube are, this is it, waltz and all, mistakes, it goes up and, and that's it. Um, I want to try and start to learn how to do my own you know, interactions, record the videos beforehand and then present them. So I guess I'm going to have to use Caden Live because that seems to be the one um, 
that does it. But no, my, my needs are very, very simple, which is why I can normally install what I need in about 35 minutes. And that includes putting the whole of the OS on. So how would you like to see Linux change in the future? Um, this is a difficult one, but I guess I'm always going to come back to, I would like to see less regression. And I know that's going to be a really difficult thing to, 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 for it to happen. Because one of the most frustrating things for me is to have something working and then an upgrade comes along and now functionality is broken. Okay, so let me give you an example of, of, of what I class as a regression. Um, 16.04, you used to have to build your own scripts to get NVENC working with FFmpeg. And then lo and behold, 18.04 come out and it was like, yes, NVENC is already included now. So no hassles, just load up your Ubuntu, there's NVENC, go into OBS and choose it. I think it actually happened in 18.10, but 19.04 is out now, and I've tried the beta of uh, Budgie. There's no NVENC. It's gone. It's disappeared. I understand from when I was talking to, I think it's Dustin, that they was having lots of problems with the way that they had compiled NVENC with FFmpeg, and it was like too generic because it's, it's very dependent on the type of NVIDIA card you've got Blah, 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 blah. All too technical for me. For me, it's just a pain that it's gone. Now, I class that as a regression because I used to have it and it worked well. I now no longer have it and I've got to start playing silly again. I don't think Ubuntu are going to fix it because their answer is, hey, we've got a solution. Just install OBS as a snaps. Alan Pope has spent a lot of time firefighting and getting NVENC built into OBS. So, hey, I don't want snaps on my system. I might be that type of person who doesn't. So why am I now being forced down that road if I want to do streaming? Now, I understand not every distribution can, can test every single scenario for every single product for every single happenance. But for me, regression is the one thing I'd like to see changed. I'd like to see a bit more quality control to stop some of the basics not working. And that's a huge ask. Yeah, I mean, I I understand and I agree that that's kind of a that, that's definitely an annoying thing where they added it and then they removed it. Um, but if they found some kind of technical issues for it, kind of makes sense that they would remove it. But uh, it would be nice to see you know them working on at least you know some kind of solution like maybe a PPA that makes it easier to install, so you don't have to do the compilation or whatever. You know, some kind of solution that doesn't require the messing with the recompilation of FFmpeg, which would be kind of a complicated thing to do. Um, so I, I would say that snaps are not really that big of a problem. I mean, I think the, the snap solution is good in a sense, um, because it makes it easier for people to just get, to get started with it if they wanted to. But also there's uh, been an announcement from canonical about the snap, uh, having some performance issues that, you know, people have known that when you first load a snap, that takes a long time in comparison to every other load. Uh, they found out the problem and they've actually started fixing it. And then they, they've, they said a performance test. They've actually improved it. Like the first run of the snaps are now like six times faster than they used to be. So like nice. there, like there is, there's a lot of potential that they're going to improve the performance as well for that. So it might be an okay solution anyway. So with, especially with those new performance improvements. But I think the general point is that there are things that was just one example where at times functionality is lost and i think oh, yeah. that that's a fair you know statement that once we've once you get people addicted to utilizing a certain feature or function and then just to you know say well 
<clears throat> it's too difficult to continue to maintain or something's changed and lose that, that that's a loss. And not that that doesn't happen on other OSs because it does. There are features and things that get removed that people are used to or stupid features put in that people hate. Uh, it happens in everyone. But I think it's a fair critique to say that's something that you want to see changed is, oh, yeah. you know, we don't move backwards um, and that we keep using forward. I totally agree. It's just like that one particular topic is like maybe it won't be as bad because of the new performance things that they did as for right. snaps. But like I totally agree with the regression thing because there's there's often times where I would be expecting something when I upgrade my system. The thing that I was using, I was like, okay, well now I have to go back and put it in myself because it's no longer there. Um, yeah. And that's that's happened to me over the course of like the using Linux over the course of the year of many years, um, probably every time I've used once, like no matter how long I use a system, as soon as I change it, there's something's going to happen like that. Um, yep. And it's just because like, if you use it for a long time or you use a rolling release system, there's, there's randomly, there's going to be something that just happens like that. Cause you have no, really no control over what's going to be done in the whole, like when they change up the new whole system. So uh, I totally agree. And it would be really nice if we could, we could at least um, be warned that these like things happen. You know, sometimes whether they'll ch- make these changes that are very big and they don't warn you about it. Um, you know, sometimes well, some districts also, do. they don't know how big they are because they don't go in like, uh, say, you know, Windows and pull a bunch of data to know what you're using and what its users are using all the time in the software. So That's true. I don't know that they would think InVenc is even a huge deal. I, I bet you there are listeners out there who don't even have an idea what we're talking about. Yeah, probably. there's a lot of people who don't use OBS at all and wouldn't even bother yeah. with InVenc or anything. So, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that's true. So, um, Zeb, moving on, you're given a chance to get a brand new laptop of your choice, right? You get to pick whichever one you want as long as it fits one of these manufacturers, a Dell, System76, Purism, or Lenovo. Which one do you choose and why? Um, well, first off, I'll start this off by saying I'm not someone who must have something that fully supports Linux and is purposely built to work well with Linux. I'm just... I love Linux and I like to try and promote it, but I'm just not that devoted to it. So without ever having a chance to play with any of the items listed, I'm going to have to go with my own experience, which is either Dell or Lenovo. Why? Because anything that I've ever bought from the Dell or the Lenovo camp for me has just worked. And it's, it's as simple as that. That's why I would pick either a Dell or a Lenovo. Now, if I had a chance to play with either of the others two, and they prove to be as good, then yes, it would be an opportunity for me to start to be that type of person who says, okay, if I'm going to buy a new piece of equipment, let's go and find the manufacturer who physically makes the effort to make it for Linux, like the guys at System76 and Purism. But at the moment, until I get a chance to get my hands on those, I'm going to go with the safe option. So what I've heard just now is that when we're itself, if anybody in, in the audience has a System76 or a Purism laptop that wants to let Zeb try it out, be sure to bring it to the, the self. Yes. Now, to clarify on one of your, your points there about you know Linux and your dedication, you're saying that if you got the new Dell or a different laptop, you may just, what, be a filthy dual booter and leave it on there or what? No, no, no. I've got a Lenovo laptop and it started off as a Windows machine. I waited until I was about nine months into the warranty 
and it's now been hosed and it's running peppermint only. Gotcha. So what you're saying is you don't care that it comes what you're not you don't care that it comes pre-installed with Windows. You're going to wipe it out and just put Linux on it anyways. So Correct. that's where you're talking. Got it. Okay. Just clarify. And and I also know as well that Dell and Lenovo do sometimes not, not so much Lenovo, but certainly Dell, they do make their they do make their effort sometimes to make sure that the components that they provide do work well with Linux. Boy, I'd have to challenge that quite a bit. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so Dell, like you say, Dell has hardware enablement across their stack. So they come out and they officially support it and the whole nine yards. But, you know, Lenovo, you have to consider Google uh, issues their corporate laptop as their X1 Carbon and they issue to all of their employees and it runs Linux. Red Hat issues X1 Carbon and it runs Linux. When I got my X1, one of the first things I noticed is from Lenovo, when you boot in, when you turn the thing on, there's actually a setup thing inside of the UEFI settings. And you tell it, do you want this laptop to be configured for Windows or Linux? And it changes a bunch of stuff. Uh, if if you want to if you want to optimize it for Linux, it changes the way that it handles uh, it goes going into standby. It changes the way that it hands, handles uh, CPU cycles for so you get better battery life on Linux. Like there's all sorts of little things, and those are baked in from the manufacturers. I I know Lenovo tends to get a bad rep because you can't go to the site and order it with Linux. But I, I think it's a bit of an injustice to them to say that they don't make extreme, uh, you know, uh, uh, insight into Linux community to, to make sure that their hardware ships to run out of the box flawlessly with Linux. Nice. Maybe I just made um, a quick hasty decision and didn't really look into the model that I bought. But certainly the Wi-Fi oh, yeah, 20 with its really weird Intel RAID configuration on the SSD. Mm. Raid on a single SSD. How does that work? So it was like that is kind of weird. Yeah, yeah I'm, so I'm I'm not sure, and I'm not saying that it's all Lenovo, and I'm not even saying Lenovo. I, this is mind you, this is coming from a guy who the last laptop I ordered from Lenovo, I had to do it not once, not twice, but three different times before they finally got me. A, well, three mistakes. The fourth one was finally correct. <laughs> uh, that's how bad of an experience I was. So I, this is not me bragging on Lenovo. They're a horrible, mm-hmm. rotten company. <laughs> But they, but they do make a computer that works. Well, there goes our sponsorship from Lenovo. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think, I don't, I don't think that was happening. Yeah. <laughs> and if it was, I wasn't reading it. So, <laughs> okay, we'll try and drag this back on track a little bit. So, um, what are you know? I, I guess, like I say in the in the in the past, I asked this question to to Ryan and Michael. In the past, you know, everybody has something that they want to bring to the table, and everybody has something they want to accomplish when they go to make content. Uh, what is it that you hope to accomplish uh, spending your time on Destination Linux? What would you like people to say about Zeb as a Destination Linux host? Um, I'd like to think it is that I bring the voice of the plain, simple user. Um, there are many good channels out there, many, many good channels where you can see and listen to very technically adept people explaining Linux and its use case. Um, ask Noah, fill your brains. Touch Digital, all spring to mind, but there are very few out there that have a simple, plain user giving their perspective of how stuff works and how it affects them. So that's something that I'm hoping people will be able to come back at these in a few years' time and go, do you know what? Zeb just talked for us. It wasn't all technical mumbo-jumbo. So, And I guess that's the only thing I want to I wanna bring the, the basic user's view of what's going on. Nice. I think you've nailed that. Yeah. 
It's I, I think it's a very important uh, piece of the show actually because we have the multiple different personalities and different level skill levels of of all of us makes this a very interesting dynamic and that's I mean that's why people like to listen to the show because we have that part of that dynamic where someone is is not just a technical person but also a, a, like a, a an average user who enjoys Linux from that perspective. An, an average user, but I, I do have to I do have to say like there's the average user the ones that you want to smash their face into the desk as hard as possible and then there's the average user like zeb right like you have common sense and you have an interest in the technology yeah. and so you 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 don't i mean at the risk of offending people you don't do and say stupid things right like you, you you're you're a genuinely intelligent person that understands the technology sometimes i think you even kind of sell yourself a little short but it is it's a very valuable insight to say what does somebody who who doesn't understand we can all make reasons we all know the reasons why we can all make excuses of why this technology does this or that it's nice to have somebody to just call it a spade a spade and say hey shouldn't be like that all right mm -hmm. I oftentimes where I'll be, I'll be trying to justify statements that like, or why something's bad or whatever. And then Zeb's like, well, it just shouldn't be stupid. Like, yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> so uh, Zeb, what do you do professionally? Um, well, let's get it out there straight away. I definitely have no affiliation or any connection to the NSA or Cheltenham DCHQ. But he is called. a bouncer. I'm definitely going with bouncer. <laughs> bouncer. Yeah. No. So, and again, I'm not that worried about people knowing what it, what it is that I do. So I don't have any NDAs and all that sort of stuff. So I work as a test analyst for a UK housing association. Um, and basically what that means is a long time ago, the local authorities didn't like the hassle of having to deal with all of their housing stock and providing social housing. So they jobbed it out to companies um, like the one that I work for, um, and so we help deal with the social housing problem in the UK. So the team that I work for is about six or seven um, strong, and we have to make sure that every single piece of software that comes into the organization and is being updated has to work and doesn't break anything that's business critical. So we have some very strict guidelines and policies on how the testing will take place, and a lot of time for me, because I don't like that sort of stuff, is spent producing the technical documentation and proof. Whereas what I enjoy is doing the actual testing and making sure that the testing we're doing falls in line with the way the, the software is used. Because you have the manufacturer's idea of what a piece of software is going to do, give it to the end user, and I guarantee you they will find four or five ways of doing the same job and one of them doesn't work. Mm. So. I, I like to make sure that the testing that I do is based upon how that individual does their work. So that's the exciting part. Another part that I really like, although it can sound very, very boring, is we might have, I'll give you an example. We recently updated a major version where all the screens changed. So it took us six months of script writing. And where I'm in scripts, it's like start Internet Explorer. You can see this on the page. Click that button, this turns up. Click that button, that turns up. And you have to describe every single piece of software step by step, what it does and how it works and what it looks like. So when they suddenly decide to change the design of the screen, that's six months' work to change all of the scripts. And it's tedious. You're sitting there hour after hour, day after day, week after week, changing these scripts. But I sometimes find that quite therapeutic. Um, so 
that's what I do in, in my profession. I'm a, I'm a test analyst. Nice. So besides your profession, what other projects are you a part of? Um, well, I enjoy streaming Euro trucks and American trucks on YouTube um, and interacting with the people who watch. Um, and I'm proud to be a part of Destination Linux yeah. and will eat be eternally grateful to Rocco and Ryan who invited me backstage to assist and then gave me the chance um, to participate. Uh, for me, it's like the pinnacle of everything I've been trying to do and to, to, to have the opportunity to sit here week after week with you guys is just awesome. Um, I also enjoy appearing on Big Daddy Linux Live um, and I treat it like my weekly Linux user group. And the people who take part offer a truly varied point of view. Um, I also enjoy watching and interacting with This Week in Linux, produced by Michael. And I guess my biggest disappointment is not being able to watch live and take part in the Ask Noah show due to the time difference. Uh, and because I'm usually up at 4 a.m. the next day getting ready to work, it's not practical for me to sit up until midnight watching that show. So even though I listen religiously after the fact... I've missed all that interaction. I've missed all that, that, that banter. So, yep, that's what I get up to outside of my profession. So, Noah, you need to do a UK edition of Ask Noah where you do, one, you know, once a month, a different time zone just to get the UK <laughs> uh, folks in there. to participate. You know, I was just thinking maybe some of those folks across the pond would get some uh, dedication Linux, but, you know... <laughs> 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 no, I'm just kidding. No, we, uh, yeah, absolutely. That that is something we could consider. The other thing I've looked at is uh, is changing the time slot. A lot of that timing was was based around um, around uh, uh, constraints that no longer exist. So that, that might get revisited at some point. Um, but uh, but in any case, the, the point is, um, Zeb, I think that you're actively participating in other communities, and I think that's really what people should take away from what you're trying to say is you participate and are supportive of other people in the Linux community, and you should yeah. be committed for that. What are some of the contributions that you uh, that you make to the Linux community outside of this podcast? Um, well, I regularly donate to a number of projects, um, and I'm not going to name any of those projects as it makes it awkward for those that I don't because the email will come through, well, you support Linda, why don't you support me? Um, but I guess my main point of giving back is the work I do with Peppermint OS. Um, I started on the forum as a basic user and have been lucky enough to be asked to become a trusted user. And what that means is that we get early access to the next version and we get to test and bug fix before it's been released. Um, and I've been recently able to attain the global moderator status on the forums. And now I get to take part in the discussions with like a little inner circle as to the direction that Peppermint should take. Should we introduce that? Should we introduce this? Um, and, I, and I try to just spend as much spare time as I can on there, starting off answering the simple questions, prepping the user so that then the real technical clever guys can come along afterwards and provide the actual solution. Um, and I do, although I do a lot of hopping and, and, and looking at distros, if I do find some errors, I do try to get back to the developer or the forum nice. and make a post. It might, might not be the most technically um, proficient post, but when I'm testing stuff, I do like to try and feed back to the forums the issues that I found, um, and that's my way of, of giving back to the community. Have I written anything? No, I couldn't. I couldn't code the alphabet. It's just I'm not that. My mind doesn't <laughs> that way. 
Well, I mean, you don't really have to do any any of that any coding to be participating in the in the community, especially doing contributions of bug reports of or mm-hmm. documentations or doing like support is probably one of the biggest pieces that you could do as a contributor is to help other people learn how to use something or you know answer certain questions and stuff like that. So that's you know commendable that you're doing that. Um, but tell us one thing that you people probably don't know about yourself. Um, it might be slightly more obvious since I've been doing this show, um, but I am fiercely proud of my British heritage. Um, and one of my proudest moments took place a long, long time ago uh, when I met Prince Michael of Kent um, and had a very nice conversation with him regarding back in 1979 to 1982, um, Ranulph Fiennes did what he called a transglobe expedition where he went around the world and went across both of the um, Antarctic and um, the Arctic. And I was at the time working for a company that supplied the last layer of protective gloves to help these guys from getting frostbite. Now, put these gloves on and you're not going to do anything other than grab your skis or grab the sledge and hope it's going to work because they were like this thick of just raw hide so that the, the cold uh, couldn't penetrate. Um, and I know lots of people like to take the mick out of the royal family. And, but for me, just an ordinary Joe at an exhibition showing these products and to have a member of the royal family come along. And what I found most interesting, he was just a bloke. He had no airs, no graces. He was just a real nice guy. Okay, he talked posh, but then he had that type of, of education. And he knew that I was just a junior member, I don't know, 17, 18 years old. But he aimed his question at me, not the technical side of the, of the company. So for me, that was fantastic. So this is really awkward considering we got you an outfit that's all the American flag for self. So um, it's, the same, it's the same color palette. So we can just accept, yeah. we can just say it, let yeah. it pretend. That's okay. <laughs> I'll be bringing my top hat in the Union Jack. Nice. <laughs> I'm not, but I, I might think about getting one there. <laughs> there you go. Well, we hope that, uh, thank you very much, Seb, for everything that you've done. Yeah. That's that's absolutely awesome. And we hope that this segment helps you, the audience, get to know us, the hosts, a little bit better. And uh, thank you, Seb, again, for everything you've done for the Linux community, for the hard work you do. And of course, thanks for your continued contribution on Destination Linux. My pleasure. All right, so on to some distro news out there. So Zorin OS, a Ubuntu-based distro, has a new beta release version 15. Zorin OS defines itself as an operating system for everyone, whether advanced developer or brand new to Linux. In this upcoming release, they say every aspect of the user experience has been reconsidered and refined from how apps are installed to how you get work done to how it interacts in the devices around you. So it sounds like a really big overhaul for Zorn OS. So some of the features that we point out here, and of course there's much, much more, is Zorn Connect, which is basically based on GS Connect and KDE Connect and add sync notifications from your phone to your desktop and SMS messaging, et cetera. So basically creating some integration in there with the phones, improved performance with GNOME Shell 3.30 and Linux kernel 4.18, new desktop theme and Zorn auto theme, which adjusts the desktop theme based on the time of day and new tailoring for touch screens, flat pack support, and of course, do not disturb toggling. They also have their own to-do app on there and many other tweaks and improvements under the hood. So I've not played with Zorn OS recently, at least. Has anybody checked this one out before? 
I mean, I've checked out a little bit of it, um, but there's there's a lot of interesting thing about it. And I really like the fact that they the like the Zorn Connect is um, as an interesting approach because I like the fact that they did like this rebranding of it. Like I would kind of prefer that they would just use the KDE Connect Android app, but the the effort they put into rebranding it so it looked all cohesive is actually pretty interesting because they, they they're doing a lot of polish on their new layout. So like they've redesigned the interface for the for the desktop. They've built that new touchscreen effect or new it's a new touchscreen layout. So like if you can switch to it and it has like everything in a single interface rather than having to do, activate the overview and etc. Uh, so like I, I like the the fact that they're doing those kinds of uh, interesting approaches to different layouts to depending on how you're using it. And the Zorn Connect it apparently is looks like they have this new um, this app application for SMS on the desktop, which I'm pretty sure it's still alpha in the the KDE Connect side. So I'm I'm curious about like why they decided to implement it like so quickly as far as like user facing, um, but it's it's still an interesting thing that they're doing that. Um, but overall, I think it's it. I I kind of wish it wasn't based on GNOME just because of like the the amount of effort they have to do to change how GNOME works. The amount that they're doing kind of makes it not as um, efficiently like performance as much as they could be. Uh, but it is nice to see that they're updating to 330 because it does improve a lot. Of, it like fixes this, the memory leaks of old and, you know, all that stuff. So it's really cool that they are doing this stuff. And I'm glad that they did add added Flatpak support. So now they have support for all three of the universal packages, um, you know, yeah. built into their, uh, well, I don't know if app images are built into the, the, the software center yet, uh, but it does have snaps and Flatpak support now. So that's pretty cool. So one of the questions I have on this is kind of what we talked about last week a little bit is Linux kernel 4.18 and a new beta release of Zorin 15. That's a mm-hmm. six to eight month old kernel. Uh, Ubuntu is moving to 5.0 finally, which is great. But this is a beta release to just get to 4.18. So right. is that a bad thing? I mean, necessarily no, because um, because it's based on 18.04 that's why they're using the 4.18 4, 4, uh, is because they are just using what Ubuntu is providing them and because they, they're not maintaining the kernel themselves. Um, but the the thing that's okay about this is because the, the kernel from Ubuntu is actually backporting certain features and security patches and all this kind of stuff to their mm-hmm. own version of the kernel. So even, if four, even though 4.18 is not being maintained by the kernel team anymore from the Linux kernel itself, uh, it is being maintained by Ubuntu and they are backporting stuff from 4.20 or 5.0 even because uh, one of the things that it's great about the uh, the versioning system of Linux is that while in most cases, in most software, when you have new versions that are big major version number changes, they are significant breakage things that are being done. In the terms of Linux, it's just because they feel like it, so it doesn't really matter. So if you mm-hmm. have like 4.20 and 5.0, are very similar to each other, so you can backport stuff from 5.0 to 4.18 without a ton of breakage. So that mm-hmm. that makes it a lot easier for them to do so. So the, the yeah. difference using that one, because Ubuntu is maintaining the kernel and because all the backports of security patches are included, it's not as much of a problem in general. Well, not everything's included, though, just to be clear. So you... Like security times, patches are yeah. going to be included, security but patches features are not going to be included. Features are not backported, so it's, it's still, yeah. you know, a... That's a long period of time because I don't know how long Zorn OS's release cycle is, but being that they're just getting on 4.18 now. Well, they're, they're uh, going to sit with whatever 
they're going to sit with it for a while. Whatever, whatever right. Ubuntu is on, right. which is exactly the same as what Peppermint do. Although we issue a new distribution every single year, 9 was based on 1804. 10, which will be coming out a few months after 1904 is issued, will still be based on 1804. Mm-hmm. Although with 10, we will now by standard upgrade to the hardware enablement stack, which means we'll get 418. So right. there's another distribution that likes to stay LTS, not on the cutting bleeding right. edge. So until we go to 2004, we'll then take whatever um, Ubuntu put out, which will probably be some sort of five variant. So yeah, if you want bleeding edge, you need to stay on arch and stuff like that. If you want stability and rock solid performance, you stay team green. Well, oh, no, um, <laughs> you wouldn't have to worry about NVENC if you just if you use Team Red. So there you go. Yeah, there you go. Uh, but they, the 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 thing about the the hardware enablement stack is actually good because they are using the hardware enablement stack in, uh, by using four point eighteen. They because I think the regular one for eighteen oh four was four fifteen. Four fifteen. Um, yeah. So because they have four eighteen, means they are enable, using the hardware enablement stack, which also means that more than likely they'll be getting five point I don't know how soon Zorn will get it, but anybody who uses the hardware enablement stack will be able to get the 5.0 because uh, all the work that's been done on the 1804 uh, enablement uh, approach for kernel. And because 1904 has 5.0, it should be uh, fairly soon for them to be able to at least like the next point release uh, or even sooner for the LTS to get updated for the, for the new kernel. So I'm really happy to see that that Linux, uh, the Ubuntu 19.04 is getting 5.0 because it means that the previous LTS will also get 5.0 based on their enablement stack. I mean, I can't really guarantee that, but it's it's a, it's a very high likelihood. Yeah. So speaking of NVIDIA and Team Green, mm-hmm. KDE has fixed a long-time NVIDIA bug. And there's been a long-standing bug for nearly six years that has caused high CPU uh, load when using the NVIDIA proprietary driver and the KDE Plasma desktop. Uh, this bug has finally been fixed. The in- NVIDIA engineer Eric Kurzinger found a workaround to the problem and also found the uh, underlying issue that has eluded to KDE developers for all these years. What is happening is that KD- KWIN made, or Quinn, I'm not really sure how you supposed to say that one, uh, made an incorrect assumption about GLX uh, swap buffer operation. It's been, if you've, if you've ever experienced this issue, it'll be available, the fix will be available in the Plasma 5.16. Uh, I've noticed some kind of issues with CPU load, and I've noticed some kind of with like, uh, ran- like some memory leaks every, here and there. Uh, but I've never seen like a big problem that's like for like years of noticing. Uh, so I, this is actually kind of new to me. Yeah, I found this interesting that for six years a bug has been out there, and I have to agree with you, Michael, that I have to believe that the CPU load issues were minimal enough that people weren't really experiencing, knowing there maybe like some of those memory leaks sometimes where people just like don't even realize that it's kind of happening in the background, but I'm surprised it took this long for them to find a fix for it if it was a major issue. So I don't think it could have been. I, I tell you what, I'm not sure if this is the same issue or not, but one of the things that I was so happy about that 580, Ryan, was the fact that on uh, my desktop with on, under NVIDIA, the whole Plasma desktop would just lock up. The time would freeze. Uh, all of the windows at the bottom, like it, it, they would, they, it would be whatever they're static were. Like I could move the windows around, but the little title bar at the bottom 
all those would be inaccurate. If I closed every window, they would all show was still open. I couldn't minimize anything. And the only way to fix it was to bounce uh, the shell. And then when I, when that came back, then obviously it would, it would restore. And, and that, I, that was pretty much, I, I mean, I could set my watch by how often that happened. Right. Uh, so now I, the, the machine that I, I ran that on, why I think it may be related to what you're talking about machine. I ran that on and experienced the most problems was the oldest CPU. Uh, and it also, I did a lot of my, uh, my video editing and stuff like that on there. Uh, and, and that machine hung up all the time. So I'm not sure if that's, if we're referencing the same bug or not, but there have definitely been some issues with KDE on NVIDIA and that issue does not exist if you're just using Intel graphics. Yeah, or, or the 580. Yeah. 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 There's definitely been issues in KDE with Nvidia over the years. Specifically for me, it was always the fracturing of the toolbars and missing text and menus and those type of things that would randomly pop up. Uh, and then when I switched to AMD, all of that went away. So there were definitely bugs that have happened over that time. But I guess the good news here is the Nvidia engineers are contributing directly to the stability of KDE by going in and fixing this bug that's been sitting out there for six years. The bad news is there was a bug sitting out there for six years. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm thinking that bug was assigned to Michael and that's why it's taken so long. How dare you? I I I'm completely offended by how that kind of makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So onto some software news. And much to the surprise of um, Ryan, Nano 4 has been released, and I use Nano. Nice. Um, it's my go-to text editor when I've got to do anything in the command line or if a distro has messed up and I need to go back to a TTY. And I never know the correct terminology for it, whether it's an int level or whatever, but I just press Control or F2 and I've got a login prompt. So if I've got to do anything... Um, and probably the most things I've been have, I've had to do over the years is edit my uh, Nvidia uh, xorg.conf file to take certain stuff out that has been causing an issue. And I've always used Nano rather than Vi. So Nano is a very popular option, offering a familiar and easy to use text editor in place of the more sophisticated options like Vi or Vim. So this release includes the following improvements. An overlong line is no longer automatically hard wrapped, which can cause some confusion when you're trying to copy and paste commands from the internet mm-hmm. and you don't know, is that one contiguous line? Has it, because the way they're formatted the internet pages, that meant to be coming around on two lines. So I guess that's not going to be an issue anymore. Um, they've managed to sort out the smooth scrolling, i.e. one, li- one line at a time. Um, A new line character is no longer automatically added. I like that. Mm -hmm. Yep. New option switches for turning features on and off. Alt up and alt down. Now do line-wise scrolling instead of find next. And a number of other other fixes. So it's good to see that my favorite um, line editor has has had had some updates. Are you guys regular nano users or are you Vi and Vim guys? I'm a Vim guy through and through. When I'm editing configs, I'm using Nano. When I'm using doing text editing, I'm doing Sublime Text. Yeah, so I've recently switched to Vim, but I have I, I, I have a long love for Nano, and I generally feature it in my channel, although now I'm doing a mixture where if I'm doing a command uh, that I want to show people, I'll show them in Nano. 
but I generally write my show notes now in Vim as well. So they kind of get to see a little bit of both with there because I think for new users, you, <laughs> there's a funny meme out there with, uh, I, it says, I finally figured out how to get out of Vim and the computer smashed in half and the screen shattered. So <laughs> I think for new users, uh, Vim's probably, you know, it's going to confuse people. And I've seen videos on people doing Vim and Linux and, and you know, trolls coming in or regular people saying, oh my gosh, you guys are still using text editing like that. They don't understand how powerful Vim is once you get those command lines down. It's much like an i3 experience where once you learn those short exactly. techniques, what you can do so quickly that is very difficult to do anything else. So for most people, I think Nano is fantastic. I love seeing that they're continuing to update it. I think it's more of something that you would want to show somebody if you're teaching them Linux versus say a Vim, which is just going to probably create unnecessary um, confusion for them at the beginning. But Nano is a great tool and it's always been there for me up until this point of when I learned Vim and that in Sublime Text, like Michael said, is also a great option as well at times just to do some of your editing. But it's, yeah, it's a fantastic tool. I love to see it still getting updates. Yeah, and I, I'm really happy to see like some of these the, these things have been longstanding issues like the the hard lined or the hard wrapping of the lines and the have adding an extra new line character for really no reason kind of created yeah. some issues with some scripts and you know, when you copy paste things like those kind of problems. So it's nice to see that they're fixing that. And there's also uh, I found this Reddit thread um, recently where they provided a syntax highlighting and some other stuff and to nice coloring uh, approach to. Uh, modifying nano with a, like a nano RC config. So like, that's kind of cool. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes too, but we, but it's really nice to see that these things being done. You know, it's interesting. Um, Brian, you're going from nano to Vim. I actually, in a lot of ways, I'm going the opposite direction. I, uh, I got into Vim years ago, 10 years ago, and uh, never did figure out how to get out. And so I've been using Vim ever since, but uh, now the truth is I, I went to, when I went to do my Red Hat certification, uh, VI and Vim is what's installed by default. So you, ha you don't have access to the internet. You have to be able to, uh, to, to be able to navigate VI and Vim. And that's what all the courseware is written in. And uh, like you say, once you learn the power of Vim, then, then you prefer it. But what I found is that nano is be quickly becoming the default in a lot of things. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I have, I have found myself kind of saying, well, I also need to be familiar with nano. Now the, the nice thing about nano is if I was talking to a new user and they were listening to this discussion, they weren't sure which one to go with. They were going to learn one text editor. They didn't know which one to start with. I would tell you to start with VI and here's or Vim and here's why nano is so easy and, and intuitive and it gives you all of the things that you need to know right there on the screen that you can pick nano up with no experience whatsoever mm -hmm. vi and vim is what takes a little bit of memory and a little bit of training i guess as it were to kind of get your head wrapped around so start with vim because the transition from i'm finding my transition from going vim to nano like it's super easy i feel like it's just brain dead easy i also feel like i'm at a fundamental lack for for functionality and tools uh but it's very <laughs> easy to go that direction yeah but also, we we can't forget Emacs for some like a lot of people like Emacs, so there's that. But just to say, you know, if you want to start with a good text editor, you don't want to have to worry about all these kind of different like uh, configurations you have to set up and everything, because all these different editors um, like Vim and Emacs are both powerful, but they all require you to set up a, a specific configuration to learn a specific workflow in order to do it. But if you want a workflow or a configuration that's built by default, you don't have to worry about it. Sublime Text. Sublime, wow. te sublime text and not to get too far off the story of nano being released because that's really what we're talking about here but 
the thing about Sublime Text that I've come to love, it's become one of the staples on my machine. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I started to use Sublime Text. It's essentially my dr- brain dump place. And uh, every thought I have, uh, whether I'm going to do something with it or not, I open up a Sublime Text and dump it somewhere in there. And then I organize all of my no- Sublime Notes in, in a folder hierarchy. But I can get, I can get show notes. I can get uh, random thoughts. I, every client has a Sublime Text document that I just dump stuff into. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have found it to be one of the most useful tools on Linux ever. I yeah. just think it's one of the best applications I just ever. wish they would open source it because you can use it for free forever. But it's constantly will come up with that prompt. And not I want constantly. It's one, well, it's once well, not constantly, every 100 but saves. saves or so. 100 saves. But I would like to be able to just, I just think <coughs> at this point, they just need to, I, I don't know how they could possibly be making a lot of money with their current model. I wish they would open source it and just allow people to donate because I would donate regularly the, to that, that project, but I'm not going to pay the costs they want for their license because I just, I got into Linux, one of the main things I love about Linux is not having to mess with licenses every five minutes. Well, the, the, the argument is that if they were to open source it, you can guarantee that everybody's going to steal their stuff. But you can mm. you can absolutely guarantee it because they are the first innovative actual like innovative editor in a long time. But at this point with Visual Studio and everybody else, I don't know what they're holding. Visual on Studio to. Code and Atom are both clones of Sublime Text. Like I, that's I, his point. That's, what I'm that's saying. his point. His, the duplication already exists because so no, because they can't do everything that you can do in Sublime Text, and they can't. They don't. They don't support all the plugins that okay, work me, in Sublime Text. Uh, that's exactly what I was about to say. What if they open source the text editor and then sold the plugins as add-ons? Because that's that where be. it seems to me that's where all the money is in. In anyway, is that people want that plugin infrastructure? I mean, maybe. I mean, but the thing is, is that most of the plugins are made by third-party people. Like a vast majority of them are made. Even the plugin manager tool, like package dot. Uh, uh, package installer is for Sublime is not I made by Sublime. I can't imagine they're making a fortune right now on their product. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're making a ton of money hand over fist on enterprise. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it's I a don't fortune. See it but... in corporate environments, and the people I do see it use the free version or reroute. Maybe they're the making quality. it. Maybe they're making enough, and that's all they care about. I don't know. Yeah, well, maybe you're right. Either way, I think Sublime Text is one of the best editors, whether it's I, I, open I source or not. Uh, that's you know, that's a different argument, uh, but. Yeah. It is, you know, Nano 4.0 was released, and it actually is quite good. And congratulations just, to the Nano team. Yeah, We're really and happy for you, Nano. and just just so you're, if you're curious, the, the best help guide of Nano is like right at the bottom of the editor, so that's convenient. I love that. I mean, that you know, as a new user coming into Linux, and then you know, there were different instruction sets that would say, "Hey, vi into this." And I'm new to Linux. I don't have a Michael and Noah Zeb like I mentioned in an interview to ask questions to, and I vi in to make an edit. And I'm like, "What is happening?" And then finally, I found Nano, and I was like, "Thank goodness, something that makes sense." You <laughs> control X to get out, you know, to write out the file, like all, all the menus down there. So I, I mean, Nano's. Nano is a brilliant thing that I'm glad exists. Without it, I think a lot of people would probably be pretty frustrated that eventually there are other things out there you can learn that are a little more advanced, but you don't have to. You can stick with Nano. Like Noah said, he's going you know, to, to using Nano more now. So there you go. Telegram recently added some new privacy features to their cloud-based messaging tool, and it has people losing their mind. Now, anybody that has anybody that follows Destination Linux probably is in our Telegram group because, I mean, Anybody who follows Linux should be in the Telegram group because you're only getting part of the show. But uh, the Telegram has quickly established itself as the de facto messenger for the open source and Linux platform. Pretty much every conference we go to, um, there is an official Telegram group. And 
it has gotten to be to the point where when you make introductions, we get to a point where you just say, oh, let me give you that person's Telegram handle. And so the features that roll out into Telegram, particularly those that relate to privacy, are huge because obviously the people that are big into Linux and open source care a lot about privacy. And Telegram made some, some recent changes that have some people upset. One of the new features is the ability to erase sent messages with no time limit. Now, what that means essentially is previously, you could go in there if you if you fat fingered something, or in my case, I voice to text something and it sends the totally wrong message. <laughs> I can go and tap on that message, click delete. It then prompts me as an op- for an option to delete the message on the other person's side. And that improves clarity. It doesn't take away from it. Well, mm-hmm. they but that feature only existed for, you know, maybe three days, 72 hours. After that, it was in stone. And so the nice thing was you had a record of what a what the chat was between this other person. You could forward that chat around to other people if you wanted to share a conversation that you had had. And it also offered a certain amount of authenticity because when you forwarded that message, other people could look and say, yeah, Noah actually did say this because I can tap on the message and it takes me back to Noah's profile. So one of the changes that they've made now is that you can go back infinitely and delete messages in the past. The problem that people have with that is you and I have a heated conversation. And you say some things and I say some things and I make some points and you make some points. And eventually we agree that I, I, I was in the right. And so we move on with life. And later on, like six months later, you go back and selectively delete certain entries of a conversation that you made and change the entire meaning of that conversation and make me look out to be like a real jerk. And then you forward that conversation on and people assume that that was the actual conversation that occurred. And so people are saying that 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 fundamentally destroys people's ability and the integrity of a Telegram conversation. Mm -hmm. So to delete from both ends, user uh, essentially that's that that's what the complaint was. The other thing is they now allow the ability to forward messages anonymously. So the idea being, like I say before, if I forwarded a conversation, it would have my name attached to it, and then you could tap on my name and know that I in fact sent that message. Well. What they've done is they've made it so that I can tell if you forward a message from me, don't associate it with my account. And so you, I, you remove the ability to prove that I said something. I'm not really sure what Telegram is trying to accomplish here because quite honestly, I'll just take a screenshot and I can prove that so-and-so said something, right? So I, I'm not really sure what they're trying to accomplish. What's interesting is they did a poll and the poll basically came down 50-50. 50% of people support it, wow. 50% of people are against it. It's like a million some votes. So really, I expect these changes to stay. I think this is the greatest thing ever. I'm so surprised people are mad about this. Here, here, are, here are the thoughts that went through my head with this. Number one is we constantly talk about privacy on you know, and being able to keep the messages that you have private. But Noah gets mad at me and decides this private conversation we're going to have, now I'm going to show the world what Ryan really thinks and put it out there and cause damage to a reputation, even though it was you know, a different context of a discussion we're having or something else. In an era where people are utilizing social media and conversations to wreck people's lives, like take their entire careers out, things like this are increasingly more important. But the first thing that crossed my mind was my kids. The biggest fear I have for my kids is when I was growing up, the internet was this new thing. We didn't really understand the repercussions it could have on our lives growing up. 
today kids are on these stupid platforms like Facebook and other things where they're putting information out there. They're dumb kids. Their brains haven't fully developed. They don't realize that the stances they have today will change tomorrow, and they have no ability to remove that history. And when you have people going out there, very hateful groups going out there, attacking people's careers, pulling up uh, Facebook posts and different things, you know, on the internet from 20 years ago to say, hey, this person's in fact a horrible individual, um, not putting into context that, yeah, they were 18 or 20 or how much have we changed between, you know, my yeah. age of 20 and 30s, how much have we changed? The ability to go and delete stuff like this is critical. It should be available on every single platform. And yes, it could be abused. So could you you know, abuse it. Even if you don't do this, I could take a screenshot, change the text to make Noah say something really ugly with some basic GIMP skills and send that out there as well. But I like the idea that they're going down here that you can remove this stuff. Cause the fact is people's opinions change. Our thoughts change. You may have caught me on a bad day and I want to be able to get rid of that and not have that sitting out there forever. Okay. Let me give you, let me give you another side. I'll take the opposite side of this. So let's, I think where people are upset is the is the elimination of integrity up until now telegram has been a chat of integrity when somebody sends a message you can trust that the other side of that is the person that the person claims it is because you can verify that yourself i think that dissipation of integrity in exchange for privacy is what people have is what people are upset about would you be okay if maybe you can set these privacy features on a personal level, but they had granular controls inside of groups, for example, where if you want to join that group, you have to have a certain privacy. You have to have a setting set a certain way to meet a certain you know requirements or whatever. I have a problem, I guess, or I can see the side anyway, somebody who would have a problem who doesn't want to have a conversation over Telegram if that conversation can be manipulated by one side in the name of privacy, Right. I think that Telegram has already addressed a lot of these situations. What you're talking about, I want to have a private conversation and I want to make sure that's not disseminated. Use a secret chat. It's an encrypted end-to-end -end chat. It doesn't allow screenshots and the chat is set to self-destruct after a certain amount of time. So I feel like there's already features in place, but that way both sides understand that we're having a private chat and that all of those features are disabled. When I'm having a normal conversation, I feel like the expectation there is on integrity, not on privacy. Well, a mm -hmm. secret chat also only requires a phone. So you, if you, or a tablet, if you wanted to use um, your desktop, you're not allowed to use a secret chat. So there's some people who just skip the secret chats because they don't want to deal with that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. in a private conversation where one-to-one, -one, uh, you could kind of say that you, the secret chat aspect is, is really like your secret from the servers of, um, of Telegram. And yeah. you still, someone could copy, they could still do a screenshot of it. It's still possible. Thank you. It's possible, but it requires rooting the phone. No, you can, by, you can by, bypass it for sure. I've done it. By default, though, what I'm trying to say is that by default, the the Telegram developers have put into place uh, safeguards that try to prevent you from exposing what occurs inside of a secret chat outside of right. a secret chat. You know, they don't want you to forward messages. They don't want you to screenshot. I'm not saying they can't be bypassed. Sure. I'm just saying that that's the design. But we both agree that we're inside of that container and that's the, that, that's the quote unquote rules of the game. Mm -hmm. I, I just I feel like there is some sort of I don't think it's just an outright 
you know, ban on people's privacy or an infringement on people's privacy to say that when we have a conversation, I want that conversation log to be to have integrity. Very much not unlike an IRC log, right? What's put on the IRC so and people, you know, do uh, do self, uh, you know, self-hosted logs and for the for the exact same reason. So you can go mm-hmm. back and look at you know what the history of a conversation I view this is much more of taking a you know platform where you're typing thoughts and things and random you know we talk randomly throughout you know uh the week and i don't feel like i need to do a secret chat but some of that right. stuff is between me and you i feel like this is taking telegram to offer the same kind of safety that you would get on a telephone conversation so if i call you sure you could record it and somebody could screen cap that forever but that's going to take a lot of work for the most part, my conversation between you, if you were going to say, hey, Ryan actually said this to me, it would be your word versus mine in that phone conversation. We shared this topic. The phone conversation ended. You could tell everybody Ryan said this, but there's really no definitive proof of that because that's there's a certain level of privacy that comes with that telephone conversation versus me so sending do you think a that's written a, letter. And do I you think, think that that's is, always a good thing? It's not always a good thing, but I think the 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 uh, pluses here outweigh the minuses in especially when I think about kids, this is a feature that should be all over the internet. People should have the right to redact. Now the issue that comes up and where I think telegram can improve this is number one, if I redact or delete my conversation, it should notify you immediately that I did. It hopefully will say Ryan has deleted this conversation, this part of the thread. So yours is not remaining there. And that gives you the right then to remove your responses as well. Mm -hmm. But I think it is an important part of, I agree with that of privacy because yeah. you need the ability people need the ability to change hey, and what's I, happening you're, you're, with these groups coming out and attacking people is nobody's allowed to change anymore nobody's allowed to change their opinion and these things are being used to destroy people's lives so i think it's important you're, you're yeah. onto something let me let me let me follow up with that for a second what if you deleted the message but it didn't remove any trace of the message it just said there was a blank placeholder that said ryan deleted a message ryan deleted a message so even if you didn't have that's a great point if the if the goal is just to preserve integrity i can prove that if i say we had a conversation ryan said this i said this ryan said this somebody asked for proof i go to forward the messages i see that they're deleted i can say look here's everything i told you that i said i can't prove that he said it but I can prove that he deleted the conversation and then the onus is on yeah. you. That, yeah. And then you have to own that. Hey, I to deleted that. Well, what yeah. did you write? Yeah. yeah, that's a great idea. I feel like that's a, you know, honestly, that is exactly the same mentality that they went after with the edited messages, right? When you edit a message, you can change the content of the message, it but it shows, shows you. Yeah. it shows you that, that that content has been edited. I feel yeah. like that's the magic needle right there. Yeah, that'd be a, that'd be a good solution yeah. for everybody, I think. And I, I, it does make sense that there's a 50-50 side on that that poll because without the nuance, um, you know, you guys were having a 50-50 discussion about which one is better. And I, I, I do agree that, um, you know, when you're growing up with the internet, it's brand new. And it, it was still, it wasn't really permanent then because people weren't keeping track of everything then. There sure. wasn't really, yeah. archive.org wasn't really a thing at that point. I mean, depending on what, when you started. So like there's things you could go into like an AOL chat room a long time ago and, it, and all that stuff is gone and we're just destroyed. And now yeah. you just go into Telegram or you go into, you know, Facebook and t- do messages on Facebook and it's there forever. Or you go mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, post it on Twitter and it's, even if it, even if it's not, even if you delete something on Twitter, you, there's still people who is like multiple times. Like, there are websites out there that literally just do snapshots of Twitter each yeah. day. So if you go out and delete stuff on Twitter, there are history sites to go look at your old tweets and things. And yeah, I think I, that, 
I, I don't think, I, I think we should, I don't think we should get too far down that rabbit hole. Cause I think the truth is you're, it's pretty naive to assume that a functionality or feature inside of a given software is going to allow you to erase all trace of something that you wrote. I think that we should teach our kids utilize privacy features, but understand that anything you put on the internet is there forever. And if you, and, and no matter how many metric, no matter how many safeguards we put in place, no matter what kind of security practices we have and what kind of software we have, the reality is anything you put on the internet is pretty much, we have to accept that it can be there forever yeah. uh, because we can all, I, all of us are smart enough to bypass anything that telegram comes up with. Let me ask you this, each one of you, are you going to turn these features on? Are you going to make it so that people can't forward messages from you? Uh, or would you ever go back and delete a conversation past 72 hours? Would I go back and delete a conversation? Sure. Mainly because there's people who have deleted their entire account and I don't even remember who they are, but I have a conversation with them and I'm like, well, mm -hmm. if you're going to delete your account, I might as well just delete all the posts, like everything, you know, in mm -hmm. those cases, yeah, I might go and just delete that, you know, do a the nuke that entire conversation because I don't even know who that person was. But you can already do that. You can delete the whole chat even before the privacy. But, but it mean, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily delete it from the servers though, because it doesn't, I can't delete Fair. from them because they, their size no longer in, there. Would you go in and delete selective messages after 72 hours? Anybody going to do that? It depends well, on what it is. I probably won't have to today because, you know, obviously as I've grown up and, and learned that everything's permanent, I'm pretty careful about what I do say uh, there. So it's not really something I use. I really am focused on the kids here. I know you say we should teach our kids and all that stuff. And I agree a hundred percent. But kids are when they're 13, especially to 18, think they know everything yeah. and they'll do stuff anyways. They think that they are, you know, especially when they turn even myself 16 or 17. I mean, I was running businesses at this age. I thought I knew yeah. everything more than adults. I could have an adult conversation, sit at a boardroom meeting and have conversations with people at that level. I still put stupid things on the internet at times. I still had stupid opinions as mm -hmm. you get older right. and grow, or opinions that now are completely different than what I have then to now. And I feel like as kids, they should have that ability to change. I also think even as adults, adults should have the ability to change. One day yeah. you may feel this way politically, the next day you may feel some way completely different and you should be able to say, hey, you know, I changed. I don't really believe that and I don't want that attached to my name anymore. I feel like that's a good thing. And when you kind of, you can. I'm, I'm sitting on the fence on this one because the only reason I don't want this feature enabled is somebody who's carrying out illegal activities can now cover their tracks too fully they could already cover. yeah they could I, use again, something I, else that, that's completely private in every way yeah let, but some me, of them aren't intelligent enough to do that no there's let, let there's, me ask, uh, there's more than likely in the case of like like black market stuff i mean they're using something like signal where everything is blocked and you know like there's 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 approaches that way and i think that if it might stop the stupid people but also those people were probably using facebook anyway <laughs> Let me ask you I, this. I like the idea of being, being able to delete it for a certain time limit because, as, as you know, think, finger, I made a mistake. Oh, didn't mean to say that. I said that to the wrong person. Go in, delete it, send it to the right person. But after a certain period, I'd rather see that deletion placeholder. Seven, 72, 72 hours is pretty graceful for fat fingers, right? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, let me, let me I would ask rather you. have it like, you know, um, in our company, when you make a notation on a specific piece of software, you've got an hour in which you can go in there and edit it if it's incorrect. Mm. Other than that, you've then got to make another note saying, sorry, made a mistake on a previous message. It should have said this. Let me ask you this. Does anybody have a problem or plans on utilizing the feature where it, when people go to forward messages from your account, it will show up as anonymous. It won't tie it back to your account. I think that's brilliant. 
Yeah, I think it's it's. it's I mean, it, it should be. Going to use it? I'm okay with it being a default that way. It, I, I love it. I, I like the idea of it being default too. There are times where even at work, you know, I've been in corporate America a long time, where people will take messages that were intended for one audience. Maybe you're talking about a manager who shouldn't be doing this or something, and then they'll forward it to that person, right? Yeah. And it's kind of a way of building their backstabbing. Uh, points up or whatever. And it, and it wasn't intended. You're trying to, it was supposed to be between managers or whatnot, but they go ahead and forward a message. The idea that this now goes across anonymous means that you can't basically backstab people and utilize their information outside of the audience that it was intended for. Or at least not without a, a little so bit more effort. when you say it goes across anonymous, does your name completely dis- disappear from yeah. this thing? Right. Right. So, do you, but do you, you plan on turning it on, Ryan? That's you plan on utilizing Probably, the feature. Yeah. So yeah. here's the here's the issue, practical issue I have with that feature. I'm fine uh, from the privacy standpoint. Uh, but one of the things that I love most about Telegram, in fact, probably the key thing I try and sell people on on Telegram is the network effect. When I get a message from my mother and she says, hey, I want to hang out with you and I want to hang out with you and the grandkids. Um, what time works? I highlight all the, 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 her and I go back and forth and we come up with some places and some times and some ideas. And then I just highlight that whole conversation. I hit forward and I send it to my wife. And then she goes through and looks through the conversation and, and goes and says, Oh, that's what he said. She said, she said, okay. And then makes a determination. Then whatever response she sends me, I just send back over to my mother. And then I'm able to coordinate that way. Another thing I do all the time. I just yesterday, uh, Alan Jude, owner of scale engine, uh, I had a, a guy that was a client that was looking for to do the things that scale engine does. And I was talking to him on telegram and I said here, uh, and I talked to, to Alan and I just forwarded a message from Alan and that client actually could just then click on Alan's name and then message Alan directly and took me out of the loop so that they could communicate directly. I feel like that is such a fundamental networking uh, technology of telegram and that ability to, to tap on names and forward information around. So different people can contact different other people, I feel like that's a massive loss to to the network effect of Telegram. If people start to to to, to turn on that that privacy feature, I mean, you you could still share their at name, and um, you could say this is you know from let, let's say it's from your you have your your mom's conversation. You could say this is from my mom, and then just just and yeah, still I, I get it, but I, I get it, but it's not as it's not as smooth, right? Like right. I, I just I really do feel like there is a I I really feel like there is a loss. Like I'll tell you something. So even the even the t- last scene feature, right? So Ryan, you have that disabled, mm-hmm. uh, but Michael, you have that on. Mm-hmm. It is so useful for me. Like when I was coordinating with Michael to do something earlier in the week, and I was wondering if he was if if he was going to look at if he'd seen that message, being able to look at the phone and be like, oh, he hasn't been online for five hours. He's probably busy doing something completely else i better send him a text message because he hasn't been online whereas if i'd seen you know he'd been online an hour ago or something like that i would or 45 minutes or 20 minutes ago i would think to myself oh i I won't bother reaching outside so those kind of functionality i i think really enhance the experience in telegram and and to turn those often in a privacy sense i think takes away from some of that see to me it's a nagging feature because i may be able in the middle of work and you know telegram is up and I'm moving telegram out of the way of an app to get to another app on my phone. And someone's like, why didn't you read my message? You were on here last scene five minutes ago because I was at work. Do people do that? See, I've never had an issue with that. People have (laughs) always been really respectful. I'm serious. People have always been really respectful of, Hey, you know, if you don't have time, get back to me when you can. I know I've, I've messaged people on telegram that are in other parts of the country. Uh, One time I think I did it to Wimpy and I was talking to him because it said last scene five minutes ago. 
And he then told me like the next day that that was like four o'clock in the morning for him and woke him up. So yeah, I think, I think you can make mistakes because Mm -hmm. I'm guessing you left a screen up or something and it that person's there. In fact, they're not. not, Yeah. yeah, I think you can make it. It's true. It could be, it could be like a false alarm sort of thing. Yeah. So So it's like a 50, 50 that I think this one will not be a 50, 50, um, discussion here. At least I don't think so. The European parliament copyright law got passed. So the European parliament has passed their controversial and in my opinion, disastrous copyright reform law articles, Mm -hmm. 11 and 13 are the most damaging parts of this stampede on internet freedom. Article 11 makes it so search engines and news aggregators must pay to use snippets of their content. Article 13 makes content hosting companies now responsible for any copyrighted material posted on their service if they do not have a license to have that. So what these terrible laws uh, will do is create mass censorship across the internet and particularly impact small businesses, of course, which are defined as any site that runs one or more ads. That's who are anybody who would be impacted by this. They will need to likely purchase services to attempt to manage this or shut down. So if, you know, Telegram, for instance, may be somebody who now starts having to put in some type of screen scraping, reading uh, AI behind the scenes to determine that Michael posted a news article that he, in fact, does not have a license for and now needs to remove that or they will be fined type of stupidity here in this law. Mm -hmm. So it even puts large platforms in the direct fire on nonstop lawsuits, of which the only way to combat, as I mentioned, is to basically put in massive automation efforts and we know how well that's worked in the past with youtube uh going through and screening even with a company as big as google with the resources they have massive disaster in their implementations of trying to control this just the just the idea of trying to control like uh, the content you see on an algorithmic method is not is not reliable in any way whatsoever because someone could say that you could say this exact same phrase and it be uh, you know, and not monetizable or whatever, but one saying it in a quote and one saying it in like legit. And that, and the quote aspect of it is not going to be detectable by the algorithm. You're not going to be being known like this person is saying this particular thing, but like, well, you said it too, so you're automatically going to be flagged as well. Yeah. So like there's, there's multiple situations where this doesn't really work. And the fact that they're trying to do this in a copyrighted structure of, well, this particular piece of like music, we already know that the music is like, you know, within like seconds, they'll catch it. But just like, even if you have certain video or certain image in your frame or whatever, anything at all being included on on a YouTube video could be affected by this. But now they're taking it to the point of anything on any website that might be copyrighted you're just not allowed to post it. The, the cost, the cost alone to try to automate this is astronomical. Mm-hmm. Like the, the amount of money that Facebook would have to spend, for example, to be able to try to ID everything. Cause it's not just videos, right? Yep. We're not talking about just audio, audio waveforms anymore. Now they want everything matched. Somebody posts a meme. They want that to be targeted. You know, all of this stuff, and not to mention the link tax, right? The article uh, is it article uh, article eleven? Yeah. I think. Uh, the, the best thing about this the is tax? that they not only is this stupid, not only is this insane, 
They also made it complicated on top of it because within like a couple weeks ago, they renamed both of the ones that are the most annoying from 11 to, thir to 11 to 15 and 13 to 17, just to make it so confusing for people talking about it that they don't even know which one they're voting for or whatever. And yeah, like the link tax, if you take a link and you put it in, let's say you put it, you put it on your Twitter thing and you're just like, hey, check out this particular thing that you want to promote. But you put a, a small snippet of what that is, you know, to give context because, of course, people want context to the links they're given. Or if you cite a source. Yeah, of course. And then, like, if you do any of that, you have to pay for the license because you use their content. Like, what? Or you have to have an agreement in place. I and think it, this is one of the single greatest attacks on Internet out there that I've seen, you know, yeah. actually happen because it just absolutely is going to get the government so far involved into the internet. It basically makes it so that everyone's going to have to be purchasing who wants to run a content site, some licensing packages from sites like a Google or somebody big enough that can actually give you those licenses so that you can afford them. It's going to narrate and decide what conversations you can have about people, about different governments, because anybody can go in there and now take your conversation down with false flags because the yeah. only way to manage it is the same way YouTube has had to do it, which is basically anytime anybody complains about a video, the first thing YouTube does is put a copyright claim against it. They don't have to provide any proof. So now the government official decides they don't want you saying that about them. They just copyright claim it. Consider, consider, consider what happens when, uh, consider what happens when smaller news organizations want to pop up and want to try to challenge what the oftentimes inaccurate mass media is reporting. And now in order to use the source material from the mass media, they have to pay an agreement or a tax to that parent company. Like the ability for a new news organization to spring up or independent content creators is is catastrophic. I mean, th th because the cost alone will be crushing to them. You can't even mm -hmm. cite your material where you're where you're where you're getting your source material from without having an agreement or, or paying a tax like this is. And what's what's scary, Ryan, is not only is it an attack on the Internet, they won like yeah. this past. Mm -hmm. This is law. The, the, the only thing that makes us worse is. It, it hasn't come to the United States yet, but you better believe there are with the yeah. the size of these companies that are out there. It's only a matter of time before they try to bring it over here. Well, I mean, yeah. it doesn't even matter if they try to bring bring it over here. We're still affected because YouTube does do stuff in Europe. Absolutely, and a, any company that does that has services in Europe are affected by this. So the only option they have is to either just accept the stupid idiotic law or to just remove the ability from anyone in Europe to use their services. And you know how insane people were going to go if if you if YouTube blocks you from using you, you know, in Europe. You know what though man? I, I have to tell you. I have to tell you if I'm Facebook and I look at the and I look at the overbearing cost to put automation in place to try to screen everything that's uploaded onto my platform and I tell you, that's a discussion we're at least going to have yeah. is do we just need to pull out of the EU because it's not something we can afford. The to only do? way to make people care is to do something. Exactly. Like yeah. That. Unfortunately, and corporations will never do it because they're going to think about the money. They well, would it's, lose. it's possible that YouTube, YouTube has said that they shut would down Europe and say, fine, you want to pass this law? You can't even go to us. Then I guarantee you the people of Europe would get together and say, all right, we've got to fix this. Otherwise, Ryan, I, I think there's I, th I think there's I think it's a, I think it's six to one half dozen to the other. The amount of money it's going to cost to roll out. The, the required infrastructure yeah. changes to make this happen. Hopefully, and the crazy thing is, this has already happened with the GDPR rules in uh, Europe. Yeah, they've already smacked you over the head with a dirty great staff. 
Now they've added that spear on the end of that staff and they're stabbing you with it. It's just, yeah. it's, it's. Well, the GDPR thing about privacy is like there are certain levels of GDPR that make sense. And you can mm. say that it doesn't, the GDPR doesn't go so far as to uh, hurt the small business and hurt the small person, like the independent oh, user. It, it, it does. If you have to follow it by the letter of the law, there's so many forums have closed down because they don't want to have the hassle of being able to prove that they have deleted all of your records from their, from, from their mm. user base. That's how far GDPR went. You've got small businesses that now can't fully operate because they can't afford to comply correctly with GDPR rules. So it's, as I say, it's just, it's the icing on the cake, but that's the wrong way. So for me, it's now the arrow on the end of the spear. And it's like, take that, you're dead. Governments yeah. always take away your freedoms and they do it by telling you it's for your safety. Always, always, always. And everything This I is saw, not even safety. No, this is to protect your money. We're from the government. We're here to help. Yeah, we're protecting you and the small businesses and the artists out there so they can keep their work and attribute it to themselves. And yet every artist who's seen this law, and there's been many that have been interviewed since it's passed, say they hate it. So mm -hmm. they basically disguise it. It's kind of like the United States when we were trying to pass the Internet Freedom the Act. The SOPA PIPA it's stuff, SOPA yeah. Freedom. Yeah. I mean, we wouldn't want Internet Freedom, but it was the Which exact... Which American law. president was it that said that, though, that the minute the government says... This is for your own benefit. You know it's total what well, there was a I think a, it was actually very, Benjamin Franklin. Yeah. A quote from years and years yeah. and years ago. If the government tells you this is for your own good, you know it's not. Yeah. But this is why it's so important to push for a decentralized web. And I'm not saying this is the solution, but things like Beaker out there funding solutions out there that you believe in for a decentralized web, because this is just the beginning. Michael's absolutely correct. This will eventually come in some shape or form in the United States. It will be continued to be pushed in things like the stupid Internet Freedom Act and other stupid laws out there and basically taking well, what is the last morsel of freedom out there, because the only place where you can truly be free or could, I should say now, was the internet, and now they're going to destroy that as well. I think that the decentralized web is the only way to really keep a uh, the internet that we know and love today alive. So here's a very good question for you, yeah? All of those news articles that we've been covering where we've gone out and we've grabbed a piece of information and we're talking about it, this now means we would need to pay for that content? Yeah. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yep. Just... Or have, an agreement, or have an agreement in place. So I, I, I said this on, on Tuesday on Ask Noah. I said that you have to pay for the content. And I got loads of hate mail that said, and they're technically correct, uh, you have to pay for it or there has to be an agreement in place. So you, you, can, you, could, you could, theoretically, we could go approach, you know, in this case, uh, you know, whoever wrote the, the article on Foss, it. And we could whatever, say, yeah. Yeah. Right. And we could say, hey, can we have an agreement to use this on Destination Linux and sign here, sign there. I'll have my people reach out to your people and then it would be fine. Uh, so we, agreement or, or payment. Could we then get together and everybody go on and sign a global agreement that this is stupid and you can use my content? Yeah, <laughs> it's called. Yes, yes. It's called Creative Commons. And yeah. that is exactly what Creative Commons, no, that's why everything I do is Creative Commons, no, no derivatives. And so you can't take what I say out of context, but you're welcome to use anything I have for any purpose. We know it's never going to happen, but that would be just so poetic. They well, pass this silly law and we go, that's all right, because you can use what I've got. Okay, so that's that's true. And I would also point out that um, we should, we just because this is true, we have to point out how stupid 
the EU is in this in the case of these MEPs because this law is stupid. It's awful. There's multiple reasons why it should not have been passed. But that's not even the best part of how stupid it is. 13 MEPs came out a day after and said that they voted wrong. They messed up. They didn't mean to vote the way they did. 10 of them were actually like, okay, so first off, there's two different things that were being um, voted on. One was the whole thing. Then there was another proposal to get rid of the stupid taxes, the stupid link tax and the stupid copy up, upload filter. Those two horrible articles were going to be voted on to get removed. That one lost by five votes. And then the next day, 10 MEPs said, we meant to vote the other way. Yeah. We meant to get rid of these stupid proposals, the, the stupid, like the amend well, the. There apparently was a button option that was missed uh, for their voting no, or no, no. something. They changed the order of the voting so they didn't pay attention to what they were actually voting on. Yeah. Okay. So they, and, and then one of, one of the MEPs of the 13 actually said that they didn't even mean to vote on it at all. Well, we ask all of our European listeners to take to the streets. Zeb, get your baton. Let's destroy this law once and for all. It, it officially goes into law on 2020, so there is time to vote all of these morons out of your parliament and put new people in place. I would I, open invitation to anybody that can. I don't know if I'm allowed to invite people in Destination Linux. Certainly, you're welcome on Asno. Yeah. I, I want to have somebody come and present the other side of this. If there's somebody out there that thinks, oh, that's a good idea, I'd really love to hear it. Can because, you be on the show to argue with them too? Because well, because here's the, yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> yeah. here's the thing: for the life of me, I can't find anybody that thinks this is a good idea. Not a one, except except the companies who want to who want the control over the over the content. Yeah. Of course, yeah. they are. Like the RIA and everything like that. They care. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yep. So we got some great news to follow up with that awful news, and uh, <laughs> the the great news is that Dirt Four is now yeah. on Linux, uh, thanks to Feral Interactive. Uh, they've been busy get, keeping up with getting us some AAA titles on Linux, and their latest project has been Dirt 4. So if you haven't you know, heard of it, Dirt 4 is a very popular motorsport game that's developed by Codemasters, and the uh, Feral Interactive is porting it to Linux. Uh, they've, the, the Codemasters team has described this game as uh, Dirt 4 is all about embracing fear. It's about the thrill, exhilaration, and adrenaline that is absolutely vital to off-road racing. It's about loving the feeling of pushing flat out next to the sheer, uh, a sheer cliff drop, or going for the gap and that looks too small, and seeing how much air you can get when a, when a big jump. And you can just be fearless. Is that's like so? I mean, I haven't played this particular game, but I have played the Dirt uh, Dirt Rally, and that one's a very fun game. I mean, this series is beloved, right? It's oh, yeah. a it's a series that everybody loves. And you, do you remember when a Steam Proton was announced and people said, "Oh, that's it. Nobody's ever gonna do Linux native ports anymore. This is gonna put everybody out." And of course, we were like, "No, that's not gonna happen." We got a little bit of flack from some people on that, but I think this kind of proves our point here. Feral still actively engaged in getting games mm -hmm. to Linux. And, you know, creating those relationships. And I love seeing these very popular AAA games that, to me, are the type of games that people say, hey, I will have to boot into Windows to play because I don't want to give up playing Dirt 4. Um, or these racing games, people who are into racing games, kind of like Zeb into the trucking games when they're into it, they're really into it. And they mm -hmm. want their staple game. And Dirt is a staple franchise yep. out there, IP for racing games. It's an absolute beautiful graphic game. There are not... 
you will love it, Zeb. There's not a single pixel to be found. I've already got Dirt 3, so I know exactly where you're coming from. But the thing I love about it is you don't have to be good at it to have fun either. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You can be you know, thrashing yourself down this um, mountain pass and you're getting around the bends okay, and all of a sudden the driver next to you is shouting about, you know, a jump, and you think, what jump? And then you look up and then you're, you're after <laughs> down a cliff. You didn't turn the wheel what just jump? before you took the jump. And, it's just, and, and Or you could drive it like Miss Daisy. You could go down the, <laughs> down the dirt track, not doing skids and turns, enjoying the scenery, because you're flashing past this scenery at 80 miles an hour. Yeah. But the graphics are just stunning. You could actually stop, look out your window, and have a look at this fantastic Swiss Alps with the lake and the waterfalls. And it's just, you're missing all that because you're going 90 mile an hour and crashing into the tree. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a game, but you do go, oh, and you think, what have I done that for? It's just, it's just on the screen. It's so immersive. It's fantastic. Yep. Well, this game is out right now. So it launched on March 28th. So if you are interested in it, go pick it up. Another fantastic game coming to Linux is Proteus. Proteus? Proteus? Proteus, it's right? A first, it's a first-person shooter, and it's coming to Linux. So Proteus is an action-packed throwback to the 90s. You've got big guns, and you shoot things, and you shoot monsters with retro-style gore, lots of rock and roll soundtracks to amp you up. The creators describe it like this. Proteus is the first-person shooter of old. Reimagined using modern rendering techniques, it reaches the quality you expect from a AAA experience while adhering to some of the aesthetic techniques of older hardware. And it's so true. And this is another game that you can get so immersive in. You know it's only a game. And you know you've got an axe or a shotgun or a bomb or whatever. And you go around and go, oh, there's a monster there. And it just makes you jump. Yeah. But then the satisfaction you get of, Poof, chopping its head off and in like Kill, <laughs> Kill Bill fashion. I love it. Goodness knows what, coming all over the place. And they've done it so that it looks like you're back in the doom of the 90s. Fantastic. I'm really looking forward to this. And I, I'll, I'll play it as long as it doesn't suffer from that motion sickness bobbly bob. So if they can keep that out. And I didn't, I didn't get that from Doom. So I'm hoping that they haven't introduced that. And they're just in the early stages, and they're at 16K of the 52K they're hoping to, to raise. So if you're into this type of game, please dive in there, help them out, but most importantly, tell them you're helping them from the Linux community. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of times the head bob motions and things, and hopefully they put this in the game. You can They'll put settings in there to control that to stop the motion sickness. But I just love this style of game. I guess it's because what I grew up with, but what I love Zeb is, is I finally matched the perfect game for you, I guess, cause it wasn't pixelated, but it <laughs> is a throwback game. But what they did is they put those throwback elements of the fast paced shooter where, you know, you're not having to, in the modern, you know, shooters worry about building buildings around you while you're trying to shoot at people and everything else. It's just that quick pace, destroy monsters, get big guns, destroy them even harder style of first person shooter. So it has that classic element, but with modern graphics on top. It's just a perfect mix. I absolutely love it. This is a game I will definitely be getting my hands on. And another game that's not going to be a you know um, situation where you're going to have to use Proton. They're creating a direct Linux port of it as well. So there you go. 
So in our software spotlight, when I was, when we, you guys were doing the interview, I talked about rescuing photos off of hard drives. And one of the tools that I wanted to bring up, because I never mentioned what tool I used to do that back in the day was DD Rescue. So DD Rescue is a data recovery tool. It copies data from one file or block device, hard disk, CD-ROM, et cetera, to another, trying to rescue the good parts first in case of read errors. So this is the very tool that I used in cases to get people's important files off of their hard drives when they've been massively damaged, broken, even in situations where some of the disks were in fires and you had to do transplants into other disks, but the data was still bad. It basically will go out there and get what good information it can to try to Mm -hmm. put together an end product. Sometimes the recovery, you get portions of a recovery, you'll get portions of a photo, not the full one or the quality is degraded but it ends up being able to get everything that it can so that you still can keep those memories. It's a ridiculously powerful tool to have in your back pocket. Have any of you ever used DD Rescue before? Oh, yeah. I've used it quite a lot. All the time. In fact, it's one of the flash drives that I, I keep with me uh, in, my, in my backpack that I take at every client I go to. doesn't matter what their problem is. A couple ones I have. Clonezilla, uh, DD Rescue is definitely one of them. There's a, a Linux store that resets the, the, uh, the Windows password. Um, but yeah, DD risk is one of those tools you can't live without. Yeah. It's super, it's super useful. I had a time where, um, I had this massive drive that I accidentally, uh, I don't remember which distro did it, but I had a, a, a drive where I, I booted up into a distro and then it mounted the drive when I didn't mean to mount it. And the, the distro just found it and just auto mounted it. And then it didn't auto mount when I shut it off. So I didn't even know it mounted in the first place. It didn't auto, it didn't turn, uh, un, unmount it when it shut off, and therefore it had a, a, a mount point like block on the on the on the drive itself. And every time I tried to use it in any other system, it wouldn't allow me to. So then it when I started like trying to do like fix the mount point and try to recover it, it basically said it was corrupted at that point. I was like, Wait, what? Why did this happen? And so I finally was like, okay, I'll screw it. I'll just use DD Rescue and get everything back. It worked to a point, but we did have to point like specify that it is getting like all the different files. It doesn't know what the files are. It's just getting data. Yep. So it can't like do the file names or whatever it is and organize it however it is, you want it. You had it, but it will get the data for you and get the file. So it has like this uh, various random numbers and then whatever the type of file it is. So like it, it it's not going to be like get you right back to where you were, but it will allow you to keep the the data that you want. Yep. Absolutely amazing software. Our tips and tricks of the week this week is Natron. Now, if you're not familiar with Natron, Natron is an open source video compositing software that's very similar to Adobe After Effects. Um, It includes a 32-bit floating point linear color processing pipeline, a color space management handled by OpenColorIO library, dozens of formats supported, EXR, DPX, TIFF, JPEG, PNG, thanks to OpenImageIO and FFmpeg. Uh, Natron was one of the things that, that came out and I, I looked at it and unlike uh, blender, which is another really popular one, yeah. I could actually find my way around Natron. I found it to be much more, uh, 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 user-friendly and unsurprisingly, then a bunch of tutorials popped up on how to do this, that, or the other in Natron. So it, I think the trajectory of Natron looks great and it's every year it gets, it gets better and better and better and has really established itself as a truly professional tool in Linux. And I understand Michael, you actually use this quite a bit. Yeah, I mean it's it's the the only motion graphics um, the tool that's really at any kind of like professional level that is available as as an open source 
and on Linux. Like there's, you can do, Blender uh, is good for other things because it's, 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 it's fantastic for modeling. It's, it's fantastic for every type of thing, but it's not specifically built for really any of it. It's, it's mainly, it's main for, um, you, you can do motion graphics in it, but it's more of like 3d animation graphics, whereas motion graphics, not necessarily 3d animation. You could do 3d animation in it as well, but it's, 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 it's really weird. Cause it's like blender is so great for so many things, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, you have to laser focus and, and like spec like learn how the specific way of how blender works rather than how the, the, the structure of how this type of uh, software would work. So like, um, Natron is not is similar in the sense of what it does uh, for After Effects, but it isn't like it doesn't work like After Effects. It works more like Nuke, which is a node based system. So it works quite well. Uh, which you have to learn how the node system works if you're not familiar with Nuke. Right. Um, but it's kind of it, it's kind of unfortunate at the same time. I wanted to talk about it because recently I found out that Natron is losing its maintainership like it doesn't have anybody Mm. keeping working on it so i wanted to bring it up to point out like this is a great piece of software and i actually used it to create the intro for this show um so like it's it's we i use it all the time but i it's specifically for the show and it was just kind of like when i found out that they didn't have anyone maintaining it it just it was just very disappointing because i don't want this this project to die because it's a very very good project and it has so much potential that it, it, it has the potential to be a fantastic uh, motion graphics uh you know after effects type project uh, for open source and for the linux platform uh because it, it can do so many things and like specifically no i was talking about the tutorials thing i got so into natron that i was watching these tutorials and then one of the guys who was doing the tutorials said something about um he wished he could do this certain thing and it was like really awkward how he did it. I was like, oh, because you're not holding the alt key when you're trying to do this one particular thing. If you just do this one area holding alt, it'll work. He was like, oh, thank you. I was like, so like uh, even even this kind of situation where you you watching a tutorial, you're like, you, you could help the person do the tutorial because it's, it's such a unique tool and it's so powerful that you're not going to, no one's going to know everything about it anyway. And it, it's just a, it's just kind of a shame that it doesn't have maintainership right now. And I wanted to put it on here to kind of like maybe anyone who's interested, who is a developer, who is in, you know wants to help maintain the project, would see this and hopefully want to do it about, or tell about people this? about it. If, if you got, I, I would love to hear the story. If you are somebody who can pick up and help with this, and you're able to get it back on its feet, let us know. We may be able to get you uh, on the show because we'd love to talk to you once that happens. And also, I would be willing to donate to help keep this project alive to the person and people that do pick it up. Yeah. So I think it's just a very, very important project. And uh, I would really appreciate if anybody in the community does pick it up, let us know. Yeah, absolutely. We to help. All right. So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching us or listening, however you do it. Thank you so much. We love our patrons and our Kofi supporters. And we just want to give a special shout out to all of you who continue to support this show and uh, each and every week for just a dollar you can join as well. And that is darn near free. So thank you for your support. That's right. We're on coffee is another way to say that. As you can support the show, coffee offers a nice monthly uh, option that will give you the same perks as those folks on Patreon. There'll be a link in the show notes and on the website. The perks include things like access to the live shows and unedited versions of the shows, as well as our most sincere gratitude. We continue to be thankful that you 
download the show and share the show and contribute to the show. And you're only get you're really weird to, as you probably figured out from the feedback. If you're just downloading the the public release version, you're not getting the coffee edition. Then you're getting like a third of the show because it gets edited down so much. And like the best parts of the show <laughs> are sometimes in the uh, in in that that get cut out because they're they're so silly. But they're great if you have to sit down at, at a medical appointment and you can't have, find anything else to do. Then you can watch <laughs> yeah. Destination Linux. Yeah, perfect. Mm -hmm. And another way that you can actually take part in the show without um, necessarily becoming a patron if you don't want to is sending us your feedback via emails. Let us know what you think of the show. Let us know what topics you want this, you know, discussed. Let us know your favorite piece of software. Let us know your tips and tricks. So send those emails through to comments at destinationlinux.org. And then on the same website, destinationlinux.org, go to forward slash contact and find out the various number of ways that you can contact us because it's not just via email. It's not just via comments on the websites. There's a plethora of ways that you can get in touch with us to let us know what's going on. Like joining our Telegram, which by the way, I think Noah's group has more than our group in Telegram. And I think they should be equally the same. So join our Telegram. We should have equal numbers there and uh, support the channel, hang out with us, come talk with us. And sometimes we even get games arranged together through the Telegram. Yeah. So, and an easy way to get to the Telegram is just destinationlinux.org slash Telegram. And also, if you want to get some more content, we, you know, the fun doesn't just stop here. We also have our own channels. Uh, you can find Ryan by going to youtube.com slash dosgeek, where he's ta he talks, he fills your brains with all kinds of different, uh, various different like hardware videos and U Linux tutorials and uh, a lot of content. And you can also check out Zeb, where you, you can see him uh, destroying people in uh, Euro Truck Simulator. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you can see all his live streams at youtube.com slash Boss. You can check out my content and uh, this week in Linux podcast that I do at tuxdigital.com. And you can find Noah's uh, Ask Noah show where he takes questions from the audience and for various different Linux tech and business questions. And you can and remember to also like that smash button and share the show on social media. Hey, everybody, have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, have sir. a good week. Thanks. Bye-bye. Everything is tickety-boo, tickety-boo, tickety-boo. Everything is tickety-boo. One such a dreamy daydly-oodly-hoo could be a snickety-poo, snickety-poo, snickety-poo. With the sky so blinkety-blue, it causes one to say, Bless mankind, including my attackers. I'm inclined. The feeling is as oh, jolly well, oh, it's absolutely crackers. Incidentally, how about you? <laughs>